This podcast is proudly supported by Drama Victoria. Join Drama Victoria today and take advantage of its many member benefits. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record. We record on the land of the Wurundjeri Willem people and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we are speaking with Dr. Carl Sabir. He is a researcher, educator, author and speaker in the field of digital dependence, screen time and attention spans. We are going to be talking with Dr. Carl Sabir about how technology has changed the face of education and how we as teachers can combat this new age of technology in the classroom. We're really lucky as drama teachers that we get to find that balance on a daily basis. But this interesting discussion around his doctoral research had me fascinated and interested. Without any further ado, I bring you Dr. Carl Sabir. So please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carl Sabir. Hello, good to be with you, Nick. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, your doctoral research names our current timeline as the age of distraction. Can you expand on why you chose that title for how we learn? Sure. So the age of distraction refers to the fact that a lot has changed around what we do in education, but invariably a huge amount hasn't changed since the post-industrial age. So what I mean by that is we file our students into a classroom. Invariably, they'll sit in rows. There'll be the sage on the stage in front of them who delivers them information that they're asked to recall. Then at a later date, they'll be measured at how accurately they can recall that. And then they'll be quantified and they'll be measured against each other. So we have new tools, we have exciting things with VR and AI, and we're online and we're back on site and back and forth. Um, but the way education is delivered hasn't massively changed uh, with those fundamentals. What has changed, however, is uh, the element of distraction. So once upon a time when a student was disengaged with the content uh, in a the classroom they were stuck in, their only option really was either to doodle in the margins of their exercise book or perhaps stare out the window. But now the distraction is coming for them as opposed to them going for the distraction. And by that, I mean whether it's something vibrating in their pocket or notifications popping up on their laptop screen or their tablet device. Their attention is being sliced into uh, thinner sections of the pie. And that's what us as educators have to compete with to maintain their engagement when they're sat in those rows. And beautiful turns of phrase to describe the, the state of our education system. Um, mm. Would you, you suggest that perceptions on technology for learning are evolving and you actually found a discrepancy between student learning outcomes and perceptions of outcomes. Can you expand on what you found in your, in your research? Sure. So I suppose the joys of research is you're trying to prove something that you believe to be true. Uh, but if you can't, you have to be honest uh, with those results and then interpret it differently. So what I set out to do with my doctoral research was to find uh, how detrimental technology was uh, to learning. And although that's a broad umbrella question, I was trying to hone in on attention spans um, and the distraction that comes from having an open access to a device within the classroom. So what I did was I looked at uh, year 10 science students. Year 10 science students, because it's a core subject, so you couldn't interpret that variable of uh, them not wanting to be there or being an elective. 
Uh, and then the answers in the work they were doing were objective as opposed to if it's subjective and it was in the arts or in the humanities where it was open to interpretation, that would have been another variable to consider. So students then uh, were presented with video content, so you couldn't talk about the variable of a teacher being less or more engaging. And they were asked under three different conditions to take notes and then sit a comprehension test. So to take notes with our traditional beloved method of pen and paper, to take notes on their device, but only on one specific program for note taking. And then the third condition was to take notes or to do whatever it is they like on their device whilst the video was playing. And my hypothesis was to be, if they're just given open slather to their device, they can do whatever they want. It's going to impede their learning. But the data that came back from all of that just didn't have a statistically significant amount to suggest that that was true. And so the findings or the conclusion from that are that if a student is motivated to engage with the task, then they can attenuate distractions. So by that, I mean, these students were put in test conditions where they understood that they wanted to perform well on the test. And that means they were able to eliminate the other distractions. So they had the motivation to engage with the content and eliminate distraction. On the other side of the coin, what then uh, becomes a challenge for teachers is if they don't have a very specific learning task, if they're not presenting engaging content and engaging material, then the student's mind will then seek out those distractions. Their attention will be divided up into thinner slices and they'll seek something else. Now, the teacher might say, well, how do I make year eight trigonometry exciting or I'm going through this detailed part of photosynthesis or we're just delving into 18th century Irish poetry how can I make that engaging? And there's parts of the curriculum that we all have to teach that perhaps can be dry, it can be slow, or it can be difficult to make uh, enticing to the adolescent mind. But we have to then tap into how can we chunk that down into segments where we can maintain a student's focus for um, a sustained period of time, keep them motivated so that they can eliminate those distractions. So, in a nutshell, I couldn't prove that the technology was detrimental, but this was due to them being motivated to attend to the task they were presented. Okay, and was there a difference between how students thought they would do on devices versus how the versus their outcomes? Like, was yeah, where does yeah. the perception come into it? Yeah, so the the perception side of things was, and this was a mixed method study, so that quantitative process which I just talked about. Um, was collecting all the data, but it was in contrary to the qualitative data, which was interviews with the key three educational stakeholders of students, parents, and teachers, who all said that technology was an impediment to their learning in varying degrees um, from all those three perspectives, but they all assumed that having access to their devices in the classroom was something that was gonna impede their learning. And so that's what then was seeking for the data to uphold but it just wasn't the case. So we've got to close that gap between perception of how detrimental technology is and then the reality of it if it's used purposefully. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm surprised maybe you were or maybe not. Obviously, as someone that enjoys podcasts, you know, I'll throw my bias in the ring. Uh, I'm surprised that students even believe that having a device in the room was going to distract them, that they didn't see them as, you know, as openings to potential. They saw them as, as nothing but not nothing then but they saw that as a possible detrimental technology in the room that's surprising to me absolutely and often i think we discount the student voice in the commentary about how we engage with technology 
often there's a lot of finger pointing at the youth of today and uh, how adolescents are tied to their devices and things like that. But all you need to do is sit at a restaurant or on a train and see that this is not something that's the sole province of people born after uh, the millennium or anything like that. Often it can be contended that it's the young people that are, have better habits with their devices because it's not a novelty for them. So they've grown up where it's existed as if uh, it was water or electricity. They're used to it being around. So it doesn't have that same kind of novelty factor perhaps for someone of um, an older generation who's been introduced to them in later life and they haven't had the time to develop skills and how to manage it effectively. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'm going to find out more about that. Uh, so in relation to education, what are the areas where technology is yet to exceed face-to-face delivery or where does face-to-face delivery actually thrive? Sure. I think if there's anything we've learned from the last two years of having our classrooms shifted to dining room tables and our teachers being stuck to little pixelated rectangles on screens of various sizes, it's that it can't replace that face-to-face human interaction that we all thrive Uh, under and that we all yearn for, whether it's social interaction or in this case uh, in learning. I, and just anecdotally, when I was teaching online, uh, would find I'd get to the end of the school day and would be absolutely exhausted by it. And I couldn't work out why this was because as a teacher, I'd like to think I'm relatively active. I move around the classroom. I'm talking for the whole day. I'm engaging uh, my students as best I can and then moving around the school. and then sat in my study at home uh, on the one chair for six or seven hours, was more exhausted. Interesting research has since come out, uh, you can find the National Geographic about um, the fatigue that comes from being on Zoom for so long, because our brain is having to fill in the gaps on those cues that would otherwise just have naturally in front of us. So things like eye contact, body language, the natural cadence of conversation, things like uh, in a group discussion, someone knowing when they can interrupt or interject or reading the room, all of those things were lost. So our brain is working overtime to fill in those gaps, to pick up the sense of tone, to stop and pause uh, when people accidentally interrupt and then it goes in circles like that. Um, it takes a big toll on our brain. So that means that I guess once we come back into the classroom, we realise how natural that flow of conversation is, how important it is to be able to make eye contact with your peers, with your teacher, how important it is if you're a teacher to be able to look out into the room and see if someone might be struggling that otherwise wouldn't have said anything when they were online, to see a hand go up, to see the body language, whether students are engaged with what you're talking about or whether they're drifting off. None of that was presented when there are a grid of faces, if that via Zoom or whatever learning platform is being used. So although there's been commentary uh, and a range of literature in recent years about at what point will technology replace the traditional classroom experience, I think the last two years have pointed out that we're a far away off from that just yet. Absolutely. I probably couldn't agree more. People are loving Mm -hmm. being back online, or at least we're finding that the different populations and the way people prefer um, there is obviously a distinct group of people yeah. that much prefer to continue online um, and maybe yeah. they should be welcome to that. And and I think mm-hmm. that probably jumps into um, one of my next questions, which is about that balance between um, technology and face-to-face teaching and being able to work on that. But that comes down to what you said earlier about if the teacher is engaging, if the content is engaging, then the students are engaging and it doesn't really matter if they're writing with a pen or online, um, they're going to do well. Absolutely. So it's the, the content... 
and the delivery of it that are the two key aspects to making it engaging for students who, uh, let's be honest, have a really short appetite uh, for what will maintain their engagement. So they're looking for their brain to be satiated by a range of uh, different channels across the day. It's very rare that you'll see a student, or uh, we can talk about adults as well, who will just take an idle moment where whether they're waiting on the train platform or even an escalator or in a lift. Um, you don't often see now people who just let their brain be still for a moment because they've wired themselves to a certain extent um, to constantly have their brain engaged between waking up and you even can see those bad digital habits of waking up and before you've even wiped the sleep out of your eyes, uh, you can be scrolling through your phone and then doing that as you go to sleep and it falls uh, out of your hand as you nod off. Um, they're the kind of things where people just need to be conscious of their digital habits to a certain extent. Um, I know I've strayed from the question somewhat, but I suppose it's all about <laughs> But it's interesting, man. That's certainly, my, that's certainly my lived experience. You know, I'm a father of two kids and I know that mm -hmm. I, gr I grab my me time when I can and that's how I justify it. But um, but you're right about the about it's it's a kind of a gimmick for me. It's exciting still. I didn't grow up with this stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's cool to have it. And you're right, the younger people, it's just they take it, I guess, for granted. It's just part of their life. It's not this exciting yeah. thing they need to finish. Yeah, that's right, Nick. So these these students are going through an education system where they're taught about their digital footprint. They're taught about uh, screen time, which is a problematic term in a range of ways that we could certainly delve into. But uh, they're leaving school equipped with a greater understanding of how to use technology appropriately, whereas us as adults, uh, that wasn't a talking point apart from perhaps understanding how to get on the World Wide Web and type in a few uh, internet addresses. We didn't, as school leaders or our generations prior to these ones, uh, get taught about what living a life is, can be half online is. And we need to accept that, that their lives are inextricably linked uh, the offline and the online world. Their, their social world lives between both. We can't think for a moment um, that one exists without the other. And this then becomes a challenge for adolescents because um, their dependence on their devices and access into a world uh, where they connect with others. And that can be frightening for their parents, for teachers who aren't used to that being a way of socially interacting. And this then can present issues, say, if a child is being bullied online or having issues um, on a social media platform, they're now less inclined to report that to someone because the, the parent or the adult, responsible adult's uh, instinctual reaction is to take that device off them. And for them, that's a punishment worse than perhaps the bullying that's going on or things like that. So we just need to learn uh, to appreciate that their technology is here. It's here to stay. I say it's uh, akin to standing under Niagara Falls with an umbrella and hoping not to get wet. If you think you can hold back the flow of technology in 2022, um, it's a bit of a fool's paradise. Yeah, and, and that kind of connects to the, the next question and maybe we can even relate it to screen time if possible But um, mm. and maybe even teachers because perhaps you're seeing some resistance from teachers or perhaps not. I know from my anecdotal experience, there's a, a fair bit of resistance to incorporating technology for, for good reason and bad. So what are the biggest concerns people tend to have about technology in the classroom and what is your response to that? That could be screen time or anything. Sure. So I think the biggest concern is uh, the distractibility and that comes from the fact that Compared to if you, you pass a student an exercise book or a textbook, it has only one mode. It's the, the fixed text and the images that are in there that they flick through, uh, and that's not going to change. What then happens if you 
uh, encourage them to open their devices. Let's talk about laptops, for instance, is the most common mode of technology that students access. The student and the teacher then has a bit of a barrier between them, which can be quite an intimidating, even on a visual level concept, because the teacher can no longer see what's happening on the screens unless they're patrolling around behind the students. And then that creates this element of a lack of trust between teacher and student, where the student feels like they're being monitored and the teacher feels like they have to constantly watch what's going on. And they feel like they have to do that because when you open your laptop, compared to the exercise book, there's a whole lot of things going on there. There might be multiple tabs open. A messenger might be in the corner uh, beeping or notifications popping up on the screen. You've got your email badges telling you how many things you need to respond to. There might be a, a game opened in one of the web browsers. Minecraft might be running in the background. You might be working on something uh, in the Adobe Creative Suite, for example. All of that is on the screen when it's opened up and the teachers just said, can you turn to um, this reference and let's all look at this. So it's almost like if you gave a child a plate of chips and peas and said, just eat those peas and eat around the chips, although they're more enticing, um, far more eye-catching and delicious, you're telling them to have that ability to self-regulate and to control, to just ignore the things that are more attractive um, and go for something more beneficial. That's the challenge we've got. And if we can make those peas seem more delicious than the chips, yes. then perhaps they'll eat them, which is also maybe a point you made earlier. That yeah, it's, so this, it's their it, job to make the peas enticing. Absolutely. And this, if I tie it into uh, my perspective on screen time, which I think is a term that we need to um, understand is not just a dirty word. And I think a lot of the commentary out there is about screen time and us just quantifying how many hours have been spent online. We need to break it down into the fact that there is good screen time and there can be bad screen time. And the easiest way to think about it is like calories. So we all need calories to survive. Now I could go out and get those calories from um, a thick shake and a burger, or I could get it from a healthy uh, salad and good proteins and good fats and things like that, but I could still reach my 2,000 calories a day. The same goes with our screen time. We, to a certain extent, unless you live a, a life off the grid and power to you if you're in a mud hut uh, and you're obviously not listening to this podcast, uh, but there's good screen time and bad screen time. So good screen time, especially if we think of the last two years, is connecting with friends, either via messenger, social media, using FaceTime, using Zoom, Maintaining engagement with others when you can't do it face-to-face, -face. technology is something that's enabled that and has been crucial for a lot of us to maintain sanity and connection over what's been a really challenging two years. There can be arguments also made for our gaming being good screen time because it uses active motor skills, it uses um, parts of your brain where you've got to actively and quickly make decisions. So although we over-romanticise that notion of seeing a child sit with a book and flick the pages, they're not actually having to be an active participant in what's happening in that narrative. So it could be argued then if you're playing um, a game, whether it's strategy uh, or whatever is involved, but they've got to be making quick real-time decisions and that can be good for cognitive development. Now, that stems back to that one word of balance. So I'm not for one moment advocating that we all just start gaming for eight hours a day or that you spend 10 hours a day on social media connect to connect with people. But it's all about that balanced diet. It then becomes unhealthy, I suppose, when it's a binge or when you lean on it as a crutch or when it harms things like your mental health or your productivity or engagement with the real world. So it's just about striking that balance for a healthy digital diet. Yeah, and, and fear of the new is such um, like a classic human problem. 
that it seems to be a part of our DNA forever. You know, our, our bodies are wired to fear, fear difference and fear the new. Um, how do we learn to appreciate the positives with that balance? How do we appreciate the positives that technology offers, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question because I think we've been plagued as humankind with always fearing whatever the new development is. There's a, there's a quote about the overabundance of information being harmful and deleterious to the mind. And although that sounds like it could have been a tweet from yesterday, it was said in 1565 by Conrad Gessner when he was talking about the printing press. So we're half a millennium on from that. We know that Socrates talked about... Um, writing things down, being harmful to the way we remember things, uh, the telegram, the magazine, the radio, television, uh, VCR, DVDs are all things where you can go back and you can easily find how people have feared new technology. So precedent has been set and that should then help us at least understand that this is part of our human condition. We're going to fear the new. What we should then do, I suppose, is acknowledge that it is healthy to a certain extent to fear uh, things when they first arrived, but also to, I guess, embrace the fact that with that might come opportunities if it's thoughtfully approached. And, you know, thoughtfully approached is the drama teacher's bread and butter. You know, yeah. we, we don't spend a huge amount of time with our noses in screens, but uh, we certainly have probably taken PDFs over printed scripts of late, and you'll see far more people working off annotating scripts and things like that. I think maybe drama teachers are in a really lucky position where, not being on a screen is actually part of almost every single drama lesson. Um, and the lessons are often in, engaging in that way. Do you feel like, or is there any reason to believe that drama teaching and drama classes and creative subjects have you know, a, a special niche in this space and we've carved out something really special? Or is that me just talking from bias? No, I think, and having worked on the creative industry side myself, uh, and if I think about some of the toughest toughest subjects rather to deliver, drama would have to be one of them over the last two years. If you think about those things I mentioned with our reliance on tone, on conversation, on body language, on eye contact, all those cues that uh, when you take to the stage or where you're acting and performing opposite um, cast members, all of that was taken away. If any staff had to improvise uh, more than anything and to adapt and although I'm very over the word pivot, but to do that, online, I think it was drama teachers, because overnight, uh, a cast or your enthusiastic thespians were confined to the laptop screens and you somehow had to adapt what it was you were hoping to achieve when you had a stage or you had um, all those things that you used to at your disposal were confined to just a laptop screen. So I, I think out of all of the subjects, these creative fields that our students and teachers work in is something that we, we really do need to have that ability to be face-to-face. -face. Now, that's not saying there's not a huge amount of things that can be achieved with technology, but I think more to um, integrate it with uh, what we're doing uh, in the offline world as opposed to replacing it would be something that's key to focus on. Well, excellent drama teachers will keep doing what we're doing and then we'll keep incorporating new technology as it comes along. You know, first Broadway, uh, then Melbourne seasons and then our drama classrooms, uh, we copy what we see. So you're actually uh, available to talk to, to schools and students and individuals and, and businesses and companies about the age of distraction. And uh, where, where can we find you to find out more? And yeah, that's right. So uh, on the matters of uh, screen time, the nuance of that, distractibility, the way the teenage brain works, I can be found on carlsevere.com. So that's K-A-R-L 
sebire.com. Please get in touch and I'd love to take the conversation further with you. Amazing. Well, thank you so very much for your time today, Dr. Carl Sabir. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is all from us from The Aside. If you would like to ask us a question, please do not hesitate to do so at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Feel free to send us an email suggesting a topic for a future podcast. We have a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to go through our bank of over 350 episodes to find one that piques your interest. Huge thanks to Halebury for letting us record here, to Aaron Searle for providing the music, to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support, and of course, thank you for listening 